Welcome to Alcohol Across America with your host, Dr. Brad Crever, along with a weekly panel of co-hosts. Our program examines the impact of beverage alcohol on public health and safety, the nation's economy, and American culture. Each week, we discuss current trends and issues. Now, here's your host, Dr. Brad Crever. Welcome to Alcohol Across America. This is Brad Crever, your host, and this is our weekly look at uh, the impact of alcohol as a beverage, as an industry, uh, as something that impacts our communities and our own individual health um, throughout the country. In an earlier program, we talked with Dr. Scott Schwartzwelder, a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Duke University and an expert on the impact of alcohol and other drugs on adolescent development. And from our discussion, we learned that college student drinking is a big deal because of the deaths and injuries that result, but also because of alcohol's impact on learning and brain development in adolescents and young adults. Once again, my co-host today is Dr. William DeYoung, professor of community health sciences at the Boston University School of Public Health. Dr. DeYoung has devoted the past 30 years to developing, implementing, and evaluating programs and policies to reduce drunk driving, underage drinking, and the problems associated with college student drinking. Hello, Bill. Hi, Brad. Glad to be part of the program again. Um, By way of introduction, um, I guess the most important thing for me to say is that over the last 25 years, researchers have learned a lot about what might be done to address alcohol-related problems on campus. And it is important to note that much of that research has been sponsored by the National Institutes of Health, and specifically the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, Pleased to say there are colleges and universities that have worked hard to implement the evidence-based programs and policies that have emerged. Um, And with that, these schools have seen significant decreases in student drinking and its consequences. But unfortunately, those institutions are the exception, and nationally, we've made only modest gains. So to understand what works, to help us understand what works, uh, and to help us think about how we might make even greater progress Uh, I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Ralph Hinkson, who serves as Director of the Division of Epidemiology and Prevention Research at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, or NIAAA. Uh, Dr. Hinkson is a nationally acclaimed expert on drunk driving prevention and college student drinking. I've known and admired Ralph for 30 years, um, first as a scientist but also as an advocate for the laws and policies that his research has shown can be effective in saving lives. And I have to say one of the greatest pleasures of my professional life was serving together with Ralph on the board of directors for Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Uh, Ralph, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bill. It's great to hear your voice. So let's begin by reviewing the impact of college student drinking on students' health and well-being. I know there are two areas of particular concern to you, alcohol-related traffic crashes and alcohol poisonings. So what does the most recent data tell us about these two problems? Well, let me uh, give you a two-part answer. The first is that I think we need to put college drinking problems in the context of the larger public health problem posed by alcohol misuse. 
Uh, in alcohol misuse is the third leading cause of preventable death in the United States. Uh, CDC estimates that it accounts for nearly 90,000 deaths a year. And most of those deaths are uh, acute deaths, either injuries or uh, poisonings or overdoses. Um, over Nearly 50,000 of those deaths are injuries and, and poisonings. Uh, around uh, 10,000 are motor vehicle, and uh, around uh, a similar number are uh, overdose uh, deaths. So what we're we are talking about is a major societal problem. Now, with regards to uh, people who are uh, college students, uh, there's good news and there's bad news. Uh, since 1998, the number of alcohol-related traffic deaths uh, that we estimate among college students has gone down from around uh, 1,200 to um, around 970. Uh, on the other hand, poisoning deaths or overdose deaths related to alcohol have quadrupled. They've gone up from around 200 back in 1998 uh, to close to 900 in 2014. So uh, in some areas, we're making considerable progress, but in other areas, uh, we've really got our work cut out. And those are data that the public is largely unaware of. Um, I, I think this is one reason why many people including some parents, unfortunately, continue to think this is no big deal, but the statistics uh, do speak for themselves. So you've worked at NIAAA for nearly 14 years now, and I do know that college presidents and other academic leaders call on you to advise them on what they need to do to address the problem. So where do they start? What are the most important steps they can take, in your opinion? Well, I think I think the first and most important step is uh, to get a, a good handle on the magnitude of the problem. Don't deny that there's a problem. Uh, right. When I've talked to uh, lawyers who uh, have filed lawsuits against colleges and universities and fraternities and so on uh, about uh, alcohol uh, misuse and, and behaviors associated with it, uh, they tell me that the very worst thing that a college president can do is to, uh, if they know know there's a problem is to deny that there's a problem. So I think just recognition that uh, this is a serious issue uh, is the the paramount first step. Then I would recommend that that the college presidents, they have tremendous powers to convene, uh, that they try to bring together a a task force uh, that involves not only people from their uh, campus, um, which would include, you know, administrative staff, faculty, students, uh, alumni, uh, parents of students, uh, but would also involve people from their surrounding communities. Uh, you know, a lot of the uh, alcohol problems that <clears throat> Uh, occur on college campuses, uh, the, the student's uh, alcohol problems often begin before uh, they go to college. And for every college student who's in the 18 to 24-year-old age group, let's say, uh, there's nearly two that are not. So the colleges can't resolve this by themselves. They have to work with surrounding communities. Then the next step, it seems to me, is to review uh, what's being done on, the, on each campus uh, and right. in each community to, to address the issue. And then I would encourage uh, 
campus officials to look at a document that uh, our institute has published called the Alcohol uh, AIM, or Alcohol uh, Intervention Matrix. Uh, that We reviewed over 300 uh, studies of 60 different types of interventions at the individual uh-huh. level and at the policy level. And this document outlines the ones that have been found to be most effective and uh, identifies costs and barriers that need to be addressed. Okay, very good. I, I know that if people Google college, capital A, capital I, capital M, uh, that they can immediately find that report. Um, and it is um, comprehensive and very much up to date. Can you say a little bit more about the role of presidential leadership? You, you said that they have the power to convene, and that's certainly true. And they have the power to reach out to local community leaders. But how else can they communicate that it's an institutional priority. What, what else uh, do you see in the most effective uh, presidents on, on this issue? Well, I think those that, uh, as I said, number one, recognize and acknowledge that there's an issue. That's the, that's the first step. It's fundamental. Uh, but then uh, I think it's important to set clear, measurable goals uh, to develop a strategic plan uh, to, to identify uh, uh, where the problem is lodged, uh, you know, collect data on uh, where the uh, uh, incidence of intoxication and, and alcohol-related uh, harms are taking place, um, and then to develop a plan to address that. Uh, that, I think, is the most effective uh, first step. And then to, to publicize uh, why the plan needs to be implemented. If, you, if, uh, if college students don't, are not, and their parents are not provided with the real data about what's going on, they'll never understand why there are uh, certain rules and regulations and efforts to uh, reduce the problem, and they won't uh, have a sense of, of uh, that any progress could be made. They'll think, oh, it's hopeless. We can't, we can't do anything about this. Uh, but in fact, we can, and I think the evidence uh, indicates that we can. There was a time when attorneys working for universities or risk managers working for universities would actually counsel the college presidents and other central administration not to get involved in this issue, thinking that that would increase the institution's liability because no prevention effort is going to be absolutely perfect. But the legal landscape has changed. Can you say a little bit about that? Presidents and others need to know about that. Yeah, I... I, there's an, uh, some attorneys here in Washington that I uh, know quite well uh, who deal with uh, uh, potential lawsuits uh, revolving around uh, alcohol misuse. And the, the first thing to point out is that uh, alcohol misuse doesn't just affect those who are misusing the alcohol. It affects other people. Uh, when I think in, in public health about the, the, the great strides that have been made in my lifetime, uh, probably the, the most important was uh, reducing tobacco use and smoking. And it was uh, the, the turning point there to me was when people recognized that the smokers don't just harm themselves, they harm other people. Well, I would, I would venture that the secondhand effects of alcohol misuse are much more immediate 
and much more dramatic and involve many more people than the secondhand effects of, uh, of smoking. So I, I think that uh, college presidents should leverage uh, that knowledge about how other people get harmed. Uh, for example, just one example, uh, Bill, that I'm sure you know quite well, is that half of the people who die in alcohol-related traffic crashes involving drivers under the age of 25 are people other than the drinking driver. So many uh, innocent victims are harmed by these behaviors, and that's the the political leverage that college presidents can bring to bear to address these issues. Well, very good. Brad, I know you have some questions that you'd like to ask Ralph as well. Yes, thank you, Bill. Ralph, what is the prevention paradox, and what are its implications for addressing alcohol-related problems among college students? Well, the prevention paradox uh, indicates that for uh, many health risk behaviors, we often naturally tend to concentrate on those who have the most severe problems, uh, those who, uh, let's say in the, in the case of alcohol, who drink the most. Uh, but it turns out actually that uh, people that we might consider to be moderate drinkers uh, actually cause a greater number of problems than the very heavy drinkers. How could that be? We know that the very heavy drinkers are more likely uh, to experience problems related to their uh, drinking. Uh, but the way, what, what uh, explains it is that there are many more people who engage in lower levels of alcohol consumption, but still are nonetheless at risk of experiencing uh, problems. Not as great a risk as the very heaviest drinkers, but at risk. And there's so many more of them that they actually account for more uh, uh, alcohol-related problems and and, uh, injuries and and deaths than do those who are uh, the very heaviest of drinkers. Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, I think almost all colleges are prepared to uh, respond to serious episodes and uh, uh, egregious overdrinking and harm. Do they, are they attentive to what you've just described as this opportunity to make small but large-scale impacts on people who are not normally seen as problem drinkers? You know, uh, a few years ago, there was a fellow named Tobin Nelson, uh, I know Bill knows him quite well, uh, at the University of Minnesota, who did a national survey of uh, college deans and asked them if they were aware of the uh, report that uh, my institute uh, published back in 2002 uh, about uh, changing the culture uh, of college uh, drinking. And uh, but only half of them had implemented any kind of uh, intervention, and most of the interventions are in line with what you were you were saying. They focused on uh, people who uh, had uh, in, experienced uh, disciplinary problems or violated campus uh, alcohol uh, rules, and didn't address the larger uh, population. This gets back to your prevention paradox uh, uh, question. The, we, we need to address this with all students. So, for example, uh, we know that screening and brief intervention with college students is uh, brief uh, counseling interventions around alcohol are highly effective. Uh, but most college campuses uh, don't routinely 
up at University Health Services uh, for alcohol. And um, the average university student has at least uh, one university health service visit a year. So if asking about uh, uh, drinking as a routine part of health care, just as people uh, take blood pressure or uh, ask people about smoking, if asking about drinking and then providing counseling about what levels of drinking pose risk, uh, if that were done with every health care encounter, uh, then that, would, uh, that has a potential for population uh, level effects. Uh, we published an article a couple of years ago in uh, pediatrics where we uh, looked at a national sample of people who were one year past uh, high school. So that some of them were in college, some of them weren't. And the, the, the ones who were in college were least likely to be asked about their drinking and least liking they were still under the uh, the legal drinking age of 21 were least likely if they were drinking uh, to be asked to uh, reduce or stop their uh, uh, their drinking even amongst those who uh, were consuming uh, or getting intoxicated reporting getting intoxicated six or more times a month only about a quarter uh, were being asked to cut down or reduce their uh, reduce their drinking. Ralph, uh, after we take a short break, I'd like to do a little bit more follow up about uh, what you've been describing about how typically colleges respond to this. This is alcohol across America. We'll be with you in just a moment. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners, or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now. Toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America with my co-host, Bill DeYoung, and our guest, Dr. Ralph Hinkson of NIAAA. Ralph, I just wanted to ask you, uh, you were talking about uh, how, although typically universities will always respond to the, the serious alcohol problems, that there's great opportunity under what we call the, the, the public health or prevention paradox, that there's an opportunity to make small differences with people who are not serious alcohol abusers, and that actually has some very significant public health outputs. Uh, so my question to you was, how many colleges and universities do you think typically do try to address all students and not just their most serious alcohol problems? Well, I, I don't have a precise answer for that. Uh, I'm hopeful that, uh, uh, you know, a uh, a substantial uh, fraction are starting to do that, and I think that the percentage is growing. Um, we have seen some overall declines in uh, uh, alcohol-related uh, problems and uh, binge drinking uh, and driving under the influence among uh, college students. So that would lead me to believe that, that uh, more are, are doing it. Uh, if we look at the national uh, data that we've been tracking since the, the late uh, uh, 1990s, um, alcohol-related uh, unintentional injury deaths among college students uh, increased up until around 2005, going from around 1,500 to uh, nearly 1,900. Uh, but since then, uh, they've declined uh, down to around uh, 1,500 uh, on a per population basis. That's a uh, over a 30% uh, decline. The proportion of high school students, I mean, of college students who were uh, binge drinking, uh, increased from uh, 41% to uh, 45% in 2005, but since then have declined, uh, it's declined down to 37%. And uh, uh, particularly uh, driving under the influence, uh, which increased from 27 to 29%, is now down to around 17%. So progress is being made, which leads me to believe that there's been an expansion of schools that are trying to uh, not just address the most serious uh, drinkers, but to look at the larger population issue. Yeah, Ralph, I know that um, that progress um, is being made and that it's meaningful. I have observed, however, that because there are no longer federal resources in place for providing ongoing training and technical assistance to colleges and universities around uh, this issue, that we have a whole new cadre of student affairs people Uh, coming into uh, academic jobs and not really understanding the importance of what we call an environmental approach. So coming out of the prevention paradox, we understand that the majority of problems are caused not by the most extreme drinkers, but the majority of drinkers who do drink less but still are at risk and cause most of the problems because of their greater numbers. 
that establishes the case for this environmental approach. And can you say a little bit about that philosophy of prevention, the environmental approach? Yes. Um, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that uh, our knowledge base about how to effectively intervene to reduce these problems has expanded. And we now know that one can intervene at multiple different levels. We've talked about at the individual level with screening and, and uh, brief counseling interventions. There's social norms uh, programs, and we'll get into that a little later on. There are web based uh, educational programs. Uh, there are family level interventions that have been shown to be effective. Uh, and there are environmental policy uh, interventions, both college policies and uh, statewide and community uh, policies uh, that can make, uh, can make a substantial uh, difference. And there are uh, comprehensive community uh, interventions where one can tie together all of these uh, different levels of intervention uh, and through multi-component uh, uh, programs uh, bring, the, uh, bring the problems better under control. So uh, I think that the, the environmental policy part of it is particularly important. And let me give two examples, uh, if I may. Uh, the first is that uh, we've made enormous progress in this country in reducing underage drinking. Uh, when the drinking age was raised uh, to 21, uh, 1988 was the year that the 50th state adopted that law. Since that time, the proportion of high school seniors who say that they engage in binge drinking, having five or more drinks on an occasion, has been cut in half. And, and Bill, the work that uh, you've been involved with, uh, with Mothers Against Drunk Driving, uh, which was established in the early 1980s, since that time, alcohol-related traffic deaths in the United States on a, a per-population level have been cut in half. Uh, some estimates say as many as 300,000 deaths have been prevented. That came about because of the implementation of policy and educating the public about why we need the policies, how the policies are going to be uh, enforced, and then changing uh, people's uh, beliefs and attitudes about alcohol misuse and driving under the influence, uh, and uh, increasing their uh, perception that there's going to be enforcement if, uh, if they violate those rules, which ultimately leads to reductions in driving after drinking and alcohol-related traffic deaths. So with the age 21 minimum legal drinking age, um, being implemented nationwide, states that had lowered it to 18 being incentivized by the federal government to increase it to 21. There has been these dramatic changes that you just highlighted. And yet on college campuses, we have some number of presidents, fortunately a small number of presidents, a lot of students who actually believe that the age 21 law is counterproductive, that it's making the problem worse because it creates the idea that alcohol is forbidden to them, which makes it even more alluring. Um, how do we get this information in front of people more effectively so that this argument goes away? It's persisted for many years despite the data that you just cited. Well, I think first we have to uh, recognize the arguments that those who say uh, the uh, drinking age of 21 is counterproductive. Uh, the 
first argument they make is that, oh, if you raise the drinking age to 21 or maintain the, the age 21 drinking age, it's going to drive drinking underground and into unsupervised circumstances, and that'll prompt people uh, to engage in more explosive uh, drinking. Well, actually, if we look at our national surveys, uh, that's not the case. Uh, it, the ones who are uh, the young people who are 21 to 24 are much more likely uh, to drink 10 or more drinks on an occasion, or uh, 20 more or more drinks. That's like a fifth of hard liquor on a single occasion. A very dangerous uh, behavior. The 21 to 24 year olds, uh, and particularly in college, are more likely to engage in that behavior than are the 18 to 20 year olds. Another common argument is, oh, if only we could teach our kids to drink like they do in Europe. They've got lower drinking ages and they don't have any of these problems. Um, well, there have been an international studies that have uh, used the same survey questions that we ask in our national studies in the United States of 15 and 16 year olds. And it turns out that, uh, and these have been done in over, over 30, 35 different uh, uh, countries, including the U.S., uh, that in most European countries, all but about three or four, there's a higher percentage of uh, 15 to 16 year olds who are drinking to intoxication. Uh, the evidence is quite clear that uh, raising the drinking age has reduced alcohol-related traffic fatalities, a uh, 71% decline among 16 to 20 year olds in the United States, and that's more than in any other age group, and it's more than in the decline in, in traffic deaths that don't involve uh, alcohol. That's why uh, you were uh, part of the reason you were able to put together, uh, I think, a seminal uh, article that was published in the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs uh, back in 2014 called Case Closed, Research Evidence on the Positive Public Health Impact of the Age 21 Minimum Legal Drinking Age in the United States. Um, a couple of years ago, I was invited by the World Health Organization uh, to present the legal drinking age of 21 in the United States as an example of a success story, a case example of a success story. I spoke to uh, people from 134 different uh, uh, countries. And, uh, you know, this is something that uh, I think that we have to continue to strive to make people aware of the, of the success of, of, uh, and the, the benefits of uh, raising the drinking age to 21. Well, thank you for mentioning my article. I, I do remember writing that. Um, one of the things that um, I often hear from my students at the BU School of Public Health, Boston University School of Public Health, is that they will make visits to Europe and they don't see the same types of problems. They do have lower uh, minimum legal drinking ages in every European country compared to the United States. And from that experience, from that observation, they conclude that somehow the lower drinking age is protective. Yesterday, this was something that my class ended up discussing and a student pointed out, but when you travel, you don't see fully what's going on. Your exposure to the culture is very limited. You're going to tourist sites. You're, you're not seeing what's happening uh, countrywide, which uh, I think explains why this myth about European experience continues. Um, so reducing alcohol access um, it seems to be one of the key environmental strategies. And we've talked about 
the importance of enforcing the H-21 law. What are some of the other important strategies for reducing alcohol access, not just for underage drinkers, but for the college population as a whole? Because that will be protective. Yes. Uh, I think that if we look at uh, environmental policy uh, interventions, uh, probably the largest scientific literature uh, focuses on uh, increasing the price of alcohol. Uh, young people, because they have less discretionary income, are particularly sensitive to higher costs for uh, alcohol. Another uh, uh, intervention that's been found to be effective is reducing alcohol outlet density. Uh, that means the number of uh, places where alcohol can be sold per population or uh, in, a, in a geographic uh, area. And that's been found also to reduce uh, this. Reducing the uh, hours and days of sale are, uh, uh, of alcohol are important. And states that have uh, a, a monopoly uh, over the sale of alcohol, where the state controls it, it's not turned over to uh, private uh, commercial interests, uh, those states have uh, fewer problems than the, the ones that do uh, turn it over to uh, commercial interests. So all of those policies uh, have been found to be effective. Uh, there's a growing body of literature that indicates that uh, um, marketing and uh, advertising, uh, the more exposure that young people have to that, uh, the greater the likelihood that uh, they'll start drinking earlier and develop uh, alcohol problems. Um, there's not as much uh, uh, literature on how to intervene with that, uh, but it certainly is, uh, is an issue. Okay. With the issue about price, and you're right, I mean, the literature is very clear on that. The principal means of increasing price is through alcohol excise taxes. And, of course, the, the public resistance, the political resistance to raising taxes is formidable. I don't think people understand that these taxes are not indexed to inflation, and so that over time, as a percentage of the total price, the tax has become an increasingly smaller part of the purchase price. Um, I can remember going into convenience stores, and not in Massachusetts, but elsewhere in the country, and actually seeing a six-pack of beer at a lower price than a six-pack of Coca-Cola. Um, and it just meant that the taxes on the alcohol um, were not high enough, in my opinion. Bill, you had researched yourself. You were a co-author of research which looked at the actual brands of alcohol that were favored by underage drinkers. Um, I don't think you want to name the names necessarily of those brands. That's up to you. Right. But did you find that there were correlations between cost of the brand and its popularity? Well, um, cost is definitely a factor um, in, in a lot of purchases, but one of the things that we discovered through this research is that um, when it came to their favorite brands, which happened to be the brands whose advertising they most often saw, the cost was not as big a factor as you might imagine. It, it was really driven by the advertising exposure. Um, so, you know, looking at a specific brand of alcohol, looking at where they advertise, looking at uh, the audience of underage uh, drinkers who are exposed to that advertising, um, we could see that relationship. 
They see the advertising, they buy the brands. And we controlled in our analysis for the overall popularity of those brands population-wide. So it's not just a matter of, of young people, not a matter of young people just doing what they see older people drink. Uh, we controlled for that. We controlled for price. Uh, the relationship, you know, is very, very clear. And because it is a brand-specific association, it does increase the argument that the advertising does matter. Um, and that's part of the overall environment that we need to think more about. That's really so interesting. And after we take another short break, we'll allow Dr. Hinksink to get back into the conversation. This is Brad Crever of Alcohol Across America. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Responsible Retailing Forum is a leader in the industry, bringing together public and private stakeholders, regulatory and enforcement agencies, attorneys general, public health agencies and producers, and community leaders and researchers in order to identify and promulgate best practices for responsible retailing and engage the stakeholders in examinations of responsible retailing policies. For more information on RR Forum or its partners or how your community can get involved, please visit rrforum.org. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Whether the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Alcohol Across America. We'd love to hear from you with questions and comments about our program. Please send an email to crever at rrforum.org. That's K-R-E-V-O-R at rrforum.org. Now back to Alcohol Across America. Welcome back to Alcohol Across America. This is Bill DeYoung from the Boston University School of Public Health. Uh, Dr. Crever, Brad Crever, and I are talking with Dr. Ralph Hinkson, who is director of the Division of Epidemiology and Prevention Research at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, Ralph, I wondered if you could say a little bit about the role of education in dealing with alcohol problems on campus. Um, I know that when I started working in this area, well, 25 years ago now, that education was the primary approach that was being used, but it tended to be residence hall, workshops, um, student plays, that sort of thing. And it didn't strike me as being an educational effort that was particularly effective. Can you say a little bit about how that component of the overall comprehensive approach has improved over the years? Well, there are now um, 
and many college campuses use online uh, web-based educational uh, programs. Uh, our experience with educational programs, both in high school uh, and at colleges, uh, would indicate that if you only provide uh, students with information about the harms that alcohol poses uh, and, and misuse of alcohol poses uh, to the students and to other people, that 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 can change knowledge, but it doesn't change behavior very much. Uh, the more important uh, uh, things that t- to take into uh, account are what are the pressures that young people feel t- uh, to drink, uh, what are their perceptions about what their peers are doing, uh, and w- how can one work with the uh, with the community? What are the what are the environmental policies on campus? What are the policies in the community uh, around alcohol use? Uh, perhaps the most widely used of these uh, online programs is uh, Alcohol EDU. And some of our researchers out in California uh, have done a remarkable study where they looked at uh, 32 different colleges that had never used one of these programs before uh, and randomly allocated half of them to uh, receive the Alcohol EDU intervention and half uh, for comparison. And uh, they, the uh, program talked about uh, the effects of alcohol on the, on the brain and the body and uh, how it affects academic performance. Um, and, but they, they challenged misperceptions about uh, that uh, young uh, college students may have about their peers uh, drinking. And then they made it a point to talk about what are the alcohol policies in their uh, colleges and in their state uh, and uh, what kinds of uh, efforts can be taken to reduce the harm from uh, alcohol, and how to identify people who uh, uh, may have uh, be experiencing alcohol poisoning or excessive uh, drinking, passing out. And uh, what they did was they surveyed students, uh, prospective students, before, during the summer, before they began uh, college, and then uh, during the, the fall semester and in the spring semester. And what they found was that those who were exposed to these programs uh, in the fall semester uh, were less likely to drink or to start drinking, or even if they had, they were less likely to uh, to uh, drink to intoxication and experience problems as a result of their drinking. Now, unfortunately, by the spring semester, the dissipated uh, the effort, the uh, impact of this program dissipated. So, I think the uh, authors uh, correctly uh, concluded that uh, this is effective, um, and if what we probably ought to need to do is to start testing uh, booster sessions of this kind of uh, this kind of program. Uh, I kind of liken it to the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. Uh, when they first uh, flew, they didn't fly very high, they didn't fly very far, but at least they flew. And so I think rather than saying, oh, this doesn't really work very well, uh, we should say, no, let's see if we can improve it. Uh, but the authors also concluded it's, it's not effective enough now that it can be a standalone program. And unfortunately, I think uh, there are too many colleges that use this kind of program only and don't uh, look at the multi-component types of interventions, uh, including changes of policy uh, that are necessary to best address the issue. Well, on that point, the authors of that study and I worked with a doctoral student at the Heller School at Brandeis University, 
And what she was looking at specifically was whether alcohol EDU was more effective uh, among those campuses where they had more policies and other environmental approaches uh, in place. And that appears to be the situation. So I I know the people who uh, sell that course very well, and they have never said that this is the magic bullet. Um, It sets students on the right path, but their argument has been, and it's supported by the literature, you have to have a supportive environment that's consistent with the messaging that comes out of that course. Now, one of the things that you mentioned that the course does is to correct the misperceptions of drinking norms that students have. And I know from this course, I know from um, the screening and brief intervention programs, that's a, it's a very powerful message that students need to hear. Can you describe the scope of these misperceptions and a little bit more on um, why that approach, uh, changing those misperceptions, appears to be so effective? Well, uh, you know, it's true not only with college students, but with high school students as well, uh, that they tend to think that their peers drink much more than they really do. That's probably because they they remember the ones who are, uh, you know, drinking very heavily, and they remember the problems that they encounter. Uh, but in fact, uh, we talked about the prevention paradox before, uh, those who who don't drink at those very high levels actually account for more problems because they outnumber the ones who have the most severe problems. And uh, I think that it's important to uh, to to uh, take a look at these uh, interventions that try to uh, change the misperceptions. And I know, Bill, you've done some uh, some of the uh, groundbreaking research on this topic. Uh, there was a uh, uh, review, a meta-analysis of uh, literature, systematic literature review of some 60 studies that uh, looked at these norm-changing uh, uh, interventions. And uh, in the uh, these were experimental studies, and in the uh, schools that uh, did that, uh, there was a reduction in uh, binge drinking and alcohol-related problems and the peak blood alcohol level that uh, uh, people reached when they were drinking. But again, even that study concluded that the effects of those interventions uh, were not so strong that they could stand alone. They had to be, to really be effective, had to be accompanied by other types of uh, other types of interventions. And again, it's the same sort of issue. I think we need to work to improve these. I know, Bill, you've done studies that have looked at uh, trying to do it not on an individual basis, uh, one-on-one or uh, through uh, uh, web-based interventions, but you looked at uh, campus uh, public health messaging uh, programs and found that sometimes it's effective and sometimes it's not. And when it's not, it's typically because there's more drinking going on at baseline and um, that there's uh, more alcohol outlet density in the areas surrounding uh, the university so that students don't take those messages uh, very seriously. They, they think that they're not, they're not really telling them the, uh, the truth. So uh, there's potential here, and I think I agree with you substantially potential, but we need to, uh, we need to keep, uh, keep working on improving these programs. Well, well with the alcohol outlet density uh, moderating the impact of those uh, campus media campaigns, the way that I came to think of it is that the environment communicates its own message about the norms, and it's going to compete 
with your marketing campaign. Um, and it just means that you need to devote more resources. And in our study, uh, the campaigns were relatively modest in scope in terms of uh, expenditures. I can look at the University of Virginia, where they introduced um, a very ambitious social norms campaign, and it is, like many campus communities, um, uh, an alcohol-rich environment, Charlottesville, um, you know, has its share of bars, taverns, restaurants that serve alcohol uh, near the University of Virginia. Um, they introduced this, and through uh, an analysis of data over a long period of time, once they began introducing their campaign and expanding it year by year in terms of scope and reach into the population, they saw uh, survey data showing that students were drinking less and experiencing fewer consequences but also fewer emergency uh, transports to the nearby hospitals due to alcohol poisoning among the students. So, you know, as with so many things, there has to be a well-designed campaign, and it also has to be of sufficient scope uh, to really compete with that kind of environment. One of the things I wanted to turn to next, if I may, is um, the problem with off-campus parties. Um, this is something that bedevils a lot of uh, university administrators. What are some of the specific strategies uh, that have been studied um, or that you know from practitioners seem to be effective in addressing that aspect of the college drinking problem? Uh, there's a researcher that uh, we fund, I'm sure uh, Bill and Brad, you know him quite well, uh, named Bob Salt uh, out in California, who did a remarkable uh, study uh, in California where he, uh, he was invited by the public university system out there uh, to do a, uh, an intervention to reduce alcohol problems. And uh, they had seven intervention sites and seven comparison sites that were randomly uh, allocated in this experimental study. And the intervention sites, what they did, the first thing they did was they did a survey to find out where the alcohol problems were taking place. And Bill, as you mentioned, it's oftentimes off-campus parties. So what they did uh, was they uh, developed an intervention that didn't focus on trying to change each individual's uh, knowledge, attitude, and and beliefs and and behaviors about around drinking. Uh, They targeted the times and places where that drinking to intoxication was most common. Uh, So they had a social host party campaign. They did compliance checks to prevent sales of alcohol to minors, uh, driving uh, while intoxicated checkpoints, uh, police patrols targeting uh, the college student parties, and social host uh, ordinances that would penalize uh, those who held parties uh, who weren't um, uh, where the the police had been called in because of uh, disturbances. And what they found was that uh, at the the colleges that uh, implemented this type of uh, intervention, uh, there were on average 10,000 fewer incidents of uh, drinking to intoxication relative to the comparison colleges. So it can make, it can make a difference. Uh, we've only got a, a couple of minutes left, so I'd, I'd like to end with one other uh, observation that we haven't focused on, in on really, and that is the importance of parents. Uh, if uh, parents uh, engage in binge drinking, they're children are twice as likely to uh, engage in binge drinking and experience alcohol-related problems. Many parents think that it's a good idea to uh, offer their kids uh, 
alcohol at home so that they can learn to drink under supervision. Uh, there's been a fair bit of study on that, actually. A fellow named Kanak published a review uh, a couple of years ago in Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. And what he found was that if parents give their kids alcohol at home, uh, they actually they're more likely to start drinking earlier and develop alcohol uh, problems. And when it comes to college students, many parents think that uh, when they send their uh, children off to college, uh, that they lose control over uh, influencing their drinking behavior. But there have been studies that have been done now, experimental studies, uh, that uh, looked at uh, sending parents before their uh, children go off to college booklets about how to communicate with their uh, children while they're in college about alcohol. And what they found was that uh, in, the, in an experimental study, those who received the booklets, and they, and they asked the parents uh, to rate the booklets so that they could see that they actually had read them, uh, that those who had been sent the booklet and who uh, had rated them, uh, that their children were less likely to, uh, to start alcohol consumption if they hadn't uh, when they got to college, or even if they had, were less likely to have their drinking uh, escalate uh, to higher levels uh, than those whose uh, uh, parents uh, had, had not received the booklets. So uh, parents can still have an influence over their, uh, over their children when they're uh, in college. And it's important that if we're going to talk about environment, uh, the first environment, the one that has the most influence on uh, young people, is the uh, environment that they have at home. So uh, I think that parents and family play a very, can play a very important role in uh, helping to uh, reduce uh, college uh, alcohol misuse and related problems. Ralph, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating. And Bill, thank you again. Um, at on our final Alcohol Across America uh, program, we will be revisiting college drinking, and we will be talking specifically about the work that the Responsible Retailing Forum has been doing. Ralph, a lot of it being built right now upon the work that uh, Stoltz has done that you just referred to. And we'll be talking about our work in California and Pennsylvania under a project funded by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism, Ralph's organization. Uh, but our next program will be co-hosted by Colonel Mark Willingham, and he and his guest attorney Fred Tromberg will be addressing dram shop laws and alcohol litigation. So Ralph, thank you again. Bill, thank you. This is Brad Crever for Alcohol Across America. Thank you for joining us this week for Alcohol Across America. Please join Dr. Brad Crever and another weekly guest expert next Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until our next program, be safe and have a great week.